Father, I thank you so much for this day and uh, for the celebration and the worship that has already been had. And I thank you for the time that we now get to spend in your word and continue to worship as we reflect upon uh, who you are as uh, the, the giver of every good thing. Um, and also how uh, we have time now to explore your word and express what it, what it looks like to live a life of worship as it relates to our riches and our resources. Um, God, we love our things. We confess that to you. I confess that to you. I guess I can't speak for everyone, but I can speak for myself. I confess that I live uh, with a closed fist more than I do an open hand. And I need your Holy Spirit to penetrate those places that in my flesh I'm not willing to let you in. And so God, I pray in my own heart today that you would continue to convict me uh, through your word to see all that I have through the lens of all that you are. And um, I just pray for anyone else here today that isn't fully surrendered in the area of riches and resources. Lord, I pray that you would move in their hearts as well. We need you. We don't need guilt. Uh, We don't need a a good logical point or uh, anything else to drive us to change. We need your spirit. And so we just invite you in this place to do a work that only you can do. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, we're still in January, which means we need our token beginning of the year giving sermon, right? Um, And I know I drew drew the short straw on that this year, so we're going to talk about tithe. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, But but it is true, right? Uh, New year, new budget, same problem. So we got to give. Uh, But we are going to talk beyond just giving of a tithe. We're going to talk beyond just what we put in the plate on Sunday because uh, it, it goes deeper than that. Um, a lot of us uh, who do call Harbor Shores our home, we, we, we know that we are supposed to give tithes and offerings, and so that's, that's nothing new. And so it's easy for these sermons to pass year after year and to just kind of let them pass by and, and not really uh, impact our heart because we think, well, I'm, I'm good. You know, I check that box, and, and I check a lot of other boxes. Ask my, task, my tax guy. Right? He sees all my charitable contributions, and I bet I give a whole lot more than most. Right? I got compassion kids hanging on my fridge. And every time those little student ministries kids send me one of those letters in the mail, I roll my eyes and I give them a 20. And so, I mean, I'm good, right? I send kids on missions trips. And yet, it's not about what we write in that line in our taxes, right? It's not about how much or uh, what percentage, as, as much as it has to do with our hearts and the question of whether or not they are fully surrendered, a question of whether or not uh, the right person is sitting on the throne of our hearts, namely King Jesus. And if we say that reality is true, that Jesus really is the Lord of our lives, that he really is the one in control, then that should be reflected in the way that we use our riches and resources, right? Now, we can affirm the realities that we see in Scripture, uh, one being the one that we find in Psalm 24, verses 1 through 2, where we read, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. 
For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Basically, everything that we see, everything that is, belongs to him because it came from him. Not my iPhone, that came from Apple. Work with me here, okay? Go a little bit beyond that box. Everything, we are here because he is. We have because he has. And flowing from that reality is one that we find in James 1.17, where we see every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Meaning that anything in your life that you consider good, anything in your life that you consider a blessing, whether it be your bank account, whether it be your children, whether it be that hot new ride that you're driving around in, or that beautiful car that you're making and look like something out of Magnolia Farms, whatever it is that you consider to be a good blessing, it's a gift. It's something that has been handed to you by the one who created you. And so with these two realities colliding, we find our first point of the day, which is everything belongs to God and is given to us by God. Therefore, we are not owners, but stewards. Now, that's a fancy word. And if you've been around Harbor Shores for any of these Sundays where we talk about tithe and giving and all of that, you've heard stewardship before. If you haven't, it sounds like a really weird play on the name steward. I don't know. That's not my notes. I don't have a quick joke for you. But uh, it's a weird word. And basically what it means is you are a manager. That what you have been given or what you have has been given to you to manage. And that's not typically how we think about what we have, right? That is, that is a concept that would be foreign to us because it's, it's much easier for us to say, my, my house, my car, my job, my 401k, my retirement plan, my 10-year plan, my 50-year plan, my, 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 right? That's what naturally flows from our mouths. But a couple, a handful of sermons a year, do we stop and say, yeah, yeah, but I'm, I'm a steward. I'm a manager. I get that. Do we? I think if I was to ask for a show of hands, most of us would at least verbally confess, myself included, to the reality that, yes, I I, I subscribe to the idea that I do not own what I have. That it is not mine to do with as I please, to just simply use at my pleasure or my discretion. I would acknowledge the very realities that we read that are affirmed all throughout Scripture, that God is the owner of everything, and everything we have comes from Him. Therefore, yeah, I am really just, this is, this is my loan. To manage, to be used, to please Him, and to give Him glory, and to be used in the ways that would please Him. I would admit that. And if you would too, then maybe we have nothing to rethink today. Right? This is our walking in wisdom series. This is our rethinking riches and resources. Maybe we have absolutely nothing to think about today and we can end early and I can go to Rio and get some queso and we can all just have a lovely day. Amen? How dare you? You should know better, Rob Blair. We'll see next time you go along on your side. I'm going to be like, Amen! Amen! Jerk. I love you, Rob. I was just about to say it too. You're my boy, Blue. Um, (laughs) Notes. That's why we have them coming back. 
No, maybe we do. Maybe we have nothing to rethink today, but maybe we do. Maybe we do. To whatever extent we treat our riches and resources as a, well, God has this so I can have that. This is yours. This is mine. You can have offerings. You can have two compassion kids. You can have this non-for-profit that's doing some good work for the Lord. You can have this amount of whatever I have and, and I, I get the rest. It, it's like my, 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 little, my little happy fund over here. You don't touch that because I give you that. Those are the places in which we function. Those are the places where we actually live. And to whatever degree we actually live there is the degree with which we don't actually understand what it means to be a steward. And it doesn't matter what you write in charitable contributions. Those could actually be better blinders than they could be indicators of where your heart is as it pertains to your riches and resources. Does that make sense? Because I can feel real good because I give in the plate on Sunday or online or in the box, wherever. We don't pass the plate anymore. Old expression. Kids, it means we used to pass a plate. Uh, point being, I could give to this and give to that and feel really good about it while all the while blinding myself from the reality that I am living with a closed fist before God. That there are places and spaces that He is not allowed to be Lord over because it's mine. That's, no, don't touch that. That's, that's mine. Is he Lord of all? Matt Vowinkle, today, is he Lord of all? You, today, is he Lord of all? Is he truly the one who created and has all things? Is he truly the giver of every good thing? Are you truly a steward? Or are you just someone who gives some and keeps the rest? Because one reflects the heart that we are called to have towards our riches and resources, and one reflects something completely different. And so today we have to wrestle through a question, and not just today, but my goodness, just about every day. And that question is, am I inviting the Lordship of Jesus into the whole of my riches and resources? Am I doing that? Do I not just say amen to stewardship, but am I being a steward of all that I have been entrusted with before the Lord? And if not, where? When they start talking about the, 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 the money sermon at the beginning of the year, what do I just absentmindedly go, yeah, but not this. <laughs> yeah, here you go. But not this. And those are the places that we need to touch today because those are the places where the Lord is not, the Lord is not allowed to be Lord over. Somebody who has really been, uh, influential in helping me to understand and, and influential to some of our students as well. Justin Henniger, are you here today? I'm just gonna out you in the middle of the sermon. You here? Hey bro, how you doing? Love me some Justin Henniger. And what a great last name, right? Gosh, Hennigers. What a guy. Um, Justin is smarter than I am in most ways. Would we agree? I would agree. You don't have to agree. He's also very humble. Very humble. 
Justin. Uh, no, Justin knows so much about this idea of biblical stewardship. He has taught college classes on it. He has wrote books on it. Uh, last year, had the privilege of sitting in one of his classes where he discussed it with our students, uh, really just managing our finances through a biblical lens and really uh, hammering home this idea of stewardship. And the reason why I bring this brother up to you is because... Um, a lot of times when we preach sermons like this, especially on walking that is functional, right? Walking in wisdom. How do I do this? You get coffee with him. And if you can't get coffee with him, you buy his book and you read it. And if you can't buy his book or you can't read, then you join his PM elective class, which meets every Sunday night. And uh, there's still space in that, correct? Awesome. Um, and I want to make these resources known to you and available to you. And so if you are going through today and you're like, man, I, I know I've heard sermons on biblical stewardship before, but I don't really have a good framework of that. Uh, the first 20 people that find that beautiful face at the end of the service, Justin Henniger, he'll be standing at a table with a sign-up sheet. First 20 people that claim them, you get a free copy of his book. To the rest of you... Good luck. It's cheap, right? It's a cheap book. It's like five bucks, ten bucks, something like that. It's a good book, though. And beyond that, he's also going to have a sign-up sheet for his PM elective class. I want to invite you to take part in that. It is really going to help you wrap your minds around this idea of what it looks like to functionally walk in biblical stewardship of all that we have. Um, And so, Justin, thanks so much for making that available to us. And thank you for all that you do for our body and helping us think through this. Um, Because we need people who are uh, who have a specialty, who who can spend more time chewing on things that, you know, we we can't. So thank you so much for that, brother. I appreciate that. Um, I want to read a rather lengthy quote. Uh, It's it's my my sermon per sermon A.W. Tozer quote, because I love that guy. So uh, this is from The Pursuit of God. This is in the chapter, The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing. And I think this really hits on the heart of the issue that we are going to discuss today. So I apologize for the length, but I think it's needed, and I hope you see why. Uh, Before the Lord God made man upon the earth, he first prepared for him a world of useful and pleasant things for his sustenance and delight. In the Genesis account of creation, these are simply things. They were made for man's use, but they were meant always to be external to the man and subservient to him. In the deep heart of man was a shrine where none but God was worthy to come. Within him was God, without a thousand gifts which God had showered upon him. But sin has introduced complications and has made those very gifts of God a potential source of ruin to the soul. Our woes began when God was forced out of his central central shrine and things were allowed to enter. Within the human heart, things have taken over. Men have now by nature no peace within their hearts, for for God is crowned there no longer. But there in the moral dusk, stubborn and aggressive usurpers fight among themselves for first place. On the throne. This is not a mere metaphor, but an accurate analysis of our real spiritual trouble. There is within the human heart a tough, fibrous root of fallen life whose nature is to possess. Always to possess. The pronouns my and mine look innocent enough in print, but their constant and universal use is significant. They express the real nature of the old Adamic man better than thousands of volumes on theology could do. 
They are verbal symptoms of our deep disease. The roots of our heart have grown down into things, and we dare not pull up one rootlet lest we die. Things have become necessary to us, a development never originally intended. God's gifts now take the place of God, and the whole course of nature is upset by this monstrous substitution. Basically, Tozer, in his own words, recounts Paul's words in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, where man has now replaced the Creator with the created. And in the midst of that, we find not so much an obvious problem, but an insidious one. One that's hard to detect, especially in the walls of the church, where we become really good at using verses and using language and using reasoning to hide that which we treasure from the light. And so it's uncomfortable for us at times to talk about riches when, when really it should just be a yes and amen. But that's because there is something in that fleshy part of those of us who walk with Jesus and who have been made new that still very much wants to worship the created rather than the Creator. To allow things to be on the thrones of our hearts. We justify saving and storing and hoarding under the guise of wisdom and worthy pursuits. We say things like, well, I have to leave something for my kids. Don't I? Do you? Well, I have to help them pay off their college. Don't I? Do we? I'm not saying it's wrong if that's what God is leading you to do. But is that His plan or simply the plan of your financial advisor? Have you taken that before you or has the bend of culture just naturally decided something for you? Do we wrestle through it? We buy into sayings like, I'll live like no one else today so I can live like no one else tomorrow. And we justify it by saying, well, if I have more someday, then I'll have more to give someday. And in that, we can quote all the Proverbs that speak to wise investing and not blowing our money like the fool. But what about our investment in today? What is God asking you to do today? And can you even hear it because tomorrow screams louder? Have we considered the warning of Jesus that we find in Luke 12, verses 16 through 21, where he tells a story and says, And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. This is basically the first century equivalent to maxing out your 401k and retiring early. Who in here is going to look at somebody who is set in their heart to do that and call that person a fool? I would be hard-pressed to. And yet, Jesus doesn't hesitate to. 
because the creator of this man who had a plan actually knew the span of his life. Actually knew what was going to be asked of him the moment he was going to give up his soul. And so his plan didn't align with God's plan. And what a tragedy. What a tragedy that this amazing plan that this guy had laid out never got to come to fruition. And so I think in our own minds, in our own hearts, we can oftentimes just take a plan upon ourselves for our riches and our resources without actually bringing it before God and continually bringing it before Him and saying, what do you want of this? What do you want me to do of this? Because sometimes it's just easier to have a plan, right? And yet we don't know the end of our days. We don't know when that day might come. And so we can't just assume. And I know it's easy to hear something like that and say, um, you know, what, what is that really asking of us? But I just want to draw out this point first before we wrestle with that question. We can only give account for how we live today, not for how we plan to live someday. Because you can hear me and you can say, so what, I'm just supposed to sell all that I have and give it to the poor? Is that really what you're asking me to do today? Maybe. If that's what God is asking you to do. But are we even asking the question? That's, that's really the bigger thing here. Are we really taking what is not ours before the one who owns it all, who has given it all and saying, what say you? What say you? Because that is what we are called to do continuously. And hear me say, I'm not saying that it's wrong to have riches and resources, right? We have Abraham in the Old Testament, very rich guy. We have King David, man after God's own heart, wasn't hurting for money. In the New Testament, we see, uh, we see Joseph of Arimathea, right? Very rich, uses his money for, uh, I can't think of a more noble thing to use your money for, to, to house the remains of our Lord and Savior in his tomb. We have Phoebe, who uh, Paul describes in Romans 16 as being somebody who supported and pushed forward the church, using her resources to do so. Guys, that's not wrong to have. So if you're sitting here with money in the bank or a big house on Morris or whatever it is that, that are your good things, I'm not saying that that's wrong. But it is wrong to withhold it. It is wrong to take the gift without question of why the giver may have given it to you in the first place. And so are we willing to hold it loosely? Would, be, would we be willing to just take, yeah, It's yours anyway. Because if that thought in our minds produces some visceral reaction that makes you want to run from the church or yell at a preacher or or just, ah, the church didn't only care about money, guys, then really that's, that's more about what's going on in here. And it's a lack of understanding of who our God is and why He's given us things to steward to begin with. And I think a really good text to help kind of drive this home for us today and the rest of our time is found in 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's on page 993 if you're using the Pew Bibles in front of you, 993. 
And the section that we're going to read comes on the heels of several verses where Paul warns against false teachers. Specifically, false teachers who were teaching false doctrine as a means of lining their pockets. Now, I know that we're kind of numb to this here at Harbor Shores. Because... We watch Chris Fritz week after week step up here in his brand new Armani suits and sling the gospel. And we see Schultze, who's not even here today because we're talking about riches and resources, you know. And he comes peeling in week after week in a brand new Lambo from all of his book money. And it's like, we're numb to it, right? For those of you who are visiting today, first of all, I just want to say, welcome to Harbor Shores. We are so glad to have you. Also, I'm the youth director here, which means sometimes I use humor in the midst of my sermons to drive home a point. That was one of those instances. Chris, no Armani suits. Steven, you're not here. Sell your car and give it to the poor. Anyway. Um, but back in Bible times, this was a real scandal, Right? All of these teachers going around and, and speaking in a certain way, speaking certain doctrine in a way to, to get a following, to get a fan base and to line their pockets. And so Paul expressively warns against that in the first few versions, or first few versions, <laughs> whatever, uh, first few verses of 1 Timothy chapter 6. And then we pick up here in a more general warning a more general thoughts against riches and resources and the life that we are called to lead. And so follow along with me as I pick up in verse 6 through 8. Paul writes, Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, as opposed to the godliness that we see in the verses before to gain an earthly reward. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from their faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Here we see, just as we have already uh, already mentioned, all that we acquire in this life, all the riches that we gain, is nothing but a short-term loan. Right? We can't take it with us. It's here for a time. It's gone tomorrow. And when our heart isn't rooted in contentment and starts desiring acquiring more than what we have already been given, we find the first domino in a series of dominoes that can eventually lead to our disaster. The desire for more might look like a noble pursuit at first, even a Christian one. We can find verses to supplement that pursuit with what we feel to be absolute wisdom that God could not really poke holes in. Maybe it's for a better life for my family or a more secure future for my kids and their kids, leaving a financial legacy, doing these things that are, are, are wise to do. We can find the verses and the chapters that go along with that. And again, if that's what God is asking you to do, then by all means, do it. 
But sometimes we set out on a path for our lives and we justify not asking the hard questions in light of what our heart really desires, really wants, regardless of what God wants. And we find good reasons. Hey, a bigger paycheck means that I can give more to the needs of others, right? And it's just for a season. It's just for a season. I mean, if I work my fingers to the bone now, guess what? I mean, I can get my kids through college. I can pay off the house. I can pay off the car. And then I'm going to be free to do all of these other things. I'm going to be as if there's freedom in this life at any point with whatever you have. But we tell ourselves it's just a season. And so we take the longer hours regardless of the cost. Maybe it's to... Uh, maybe it's to your marital connection or your connection to your kids who you're working so hard for because you're seeing them less and less and less in pursuit of something more. Maybe it comes at a cost to your relationships. All of a sudden, you cannot invest or be invested in by the people in your life because you are so consumed by a better life that you're working for. It could very well be that it's, it's your very relationship with Jesus that takes a hit because He becomes secondary to what is primary and what you are pursuing in this life. And so what? So we need to quit our job if there's demanding hours? If I don't just get a job that lets me work 20 hours and pays me a billion dollars for it, I have, I have to quit it and find that job? No. Am I sinful because I want a nicer house? Or because I want to upgrade my ride? No. Am I a bad Christian for trying to save and invest and get out of debt? That seems like a wise thing to do. It is. Absolutely. So what are you saying? Good question. Let's continue. We can't lose sight of the fact that God desires something greater for us than a perpetual desire to have more than He's already given to us. And we see that back in verse 6, right? Contentment is that key. Godliness is the aim, and we'll see that in our pursuit, but contentment is the thing that grounds us in the reality of where we are rather than constantly seeking something more than what we have. And there's a lot of good reasons that we could give ourselves, that we could give our spouses, that we could give those around us as to why we are running after the things that we do. But are we stopping to ask the question, God, is this what you actually want from me? Does this represent more the American dream? Or does this actually represent your desire for me as your created son or daughter? And that's what we have to wrestle with. The fact is that there is great gain awaiting those who take hold of a different kind of life by faith. One rooted in contentment. Fleeing the fleeting glimmers of riches for the forever gains of godliness. Speaking to Timothy as well as to every follower of Jesus in this room, Paul writes this in verse 11 and 12. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. 
pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life with which you were called and about which you made good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Pursuing the advancement and security of our riches and resources comes so natural to us that it's really hard for us to actually imagine another way of thinking. And so how kind it is of God through the inspiration of Paul at this moment in time to answer a question that all of us are probably asking if we're wrestling at all there, which is, okay, so what am I supposed to do? Not this, fine, okay, but, but what? What am I actually supposed to pursue in this life? And it's right here. We pursue righteousness. Growing in right and godly outward action towards God and towards man. We pursue godliness, which is pursuing that right inward response, that right inward action towards God and towards man. We pursue faith, a deepening trust and dependency upon the character, word, and promises of God. We pursue love, growing in our volitional and wholehearted expression of benevolence and preference towards what God wants and and towards other people. We pursue steadfastness, strengthening our resolve and our unwavering loyalty to God amidst trials and hardships. And we pursue gentleness, cultivating a heart that is rooted, not in weakness, but in full confidence of who our source of power, who our source of change truly is. And that's found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I don't care what your financial goals are, there is more in this little chunk of Scripture to last several lifetimes, right? There's a lot of meat there. And so as we look at our lives through the lens of Christ and what He has made possible, we find a life to pursue that is radically different than what the world around us is pursuing. And yet a lot of times, if I'm honest, I'm trying to find more ways to kind of put a Christian lime twist on the American dream and make it something that can work for me that I can support biblically. And wherever I'm trying to do that, those are usually the places where I need to let Jesus into and let Him shine His light into. Paul goes on to show that this kind of life doesn't necessarily guarantee riches, but it's important for us to note, it doesn't exclude them either. So again, we hear sermons like this, and what, I have to sell everything that I have and give it to the poor? Yes, if God is leading you to it, but not necessarily. Let's read verse 17. It says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them, charge them not to be haughty, that word, for a number of reasons, but uh, don't be arrogant. Don't act superior. Don't, don't charge the rich not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Here we see the riches we steward were given to both be enjoyed by us and to be used by us to bless 
others. It's a both and. In other words, you are not sinful if you have a mansion on Morris. You are not, even Stephen, not sinful if you've got a Lambo guy, okay? Um, if you have riches and resources that 50% of our world's population would look at and just be staggered by, you're not an evil person for that. You don't have to apologize for that. You're not sinful if you enjoy a steak dinner with the guy or gal that you love or if you enjoy a, a, a great family vacation or an individual vacation. Go ham. That's great. You're not sinful for that. That's not the point. We should enjoy our blessings and they should be used as a means to point our eyes up and thank the giver of every good thing and worship His great name for being the one who gives us everything to be enjoyed. They should fuel our worship. But the point is we can't stop there. At enjoyment and worship. Because that's not stewardship. Stewardship goes a step further. The point is that our riches and resources are to be both enjoyed and used to bless others. So to steward what we have been given well, we have to look for that next step. To look at all that we have given, not just what we have portioned for it, but all that we have been given to steward as a means to bless and benefit those who are around us. And when we invest our riches and resources in this way, we see in verse 18 to 19 that there is a guaranteed return on investment. How many of you like guaranteed return on investments? Not seeing a lot of those today. And my 401k feels it. Anyone else? Don't put your hope in riches. Okay. This is the verse before. Anything. I mean, anyway. Uh, we see this in verse 18 and 19 a return on investment that far outweighs anything that this life could possibly offer. Uh, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life, that being eternal life. In short, using our riches and resources in this life to bless others is a sound investment in the life to come. And so we find a way back to the original question. Am I inviting the Lordship of Jesus into the whole of what I've been given? Into my riches and my resources? I live in a home that blows away my, my expectations of what I ever thought I would live in. I mean, I grew up with uh, three brothers in a, what, like a 950 square foot ranch with one bathroom. I always talked about putting that bathroom in the basement. Never happened. Never happened, Mom. <laughs> and now I live in a 3,300 square foot home that was very much gifted to us by God because we could not have afforded it, could we, honey? That's great. I don't feel guilty about it. Sometimes I do. But that's not the point. The point is, how am I using this home that I am now in? Is my spare room only for family and people I like? Do I only entertain those who entertain me around my table? 
Do I invite in people who are going to be hard to love? Do I invite in people who need to know Jesus? These are questions that I need to ask myself when I drive up into my driveway. Everyone else is in the red this year, but man, you got the best financial guy and you're in the black. That's great. Praise God. How are you going to use what you have been given, the blessings that you have, to bless others who are in need? Are you continually taking that question before the throne of grace and mercy and asking for His wisdom in your finances? But I've already given to this and that. And if you sat down with Dan Cattell, who does my taxes too, he'd show you. He'd, share, he'd show you the line of charitable gifts. I'd probably give so much more than anyone else in this room. Do I give 100%? Because it's really not about the percentage, is it? It's about the heart. It's about a heart that is fully surrendered to the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who created all, the one who gives all, and saying, there is nothing that I have that I can claim as mine because I am and everything that I have been given is yours. That's the point. And to whatever extent we are not willing to do that, to whatever extent I am not willing to do that, then I am living in a way that is not congruent with what I say is true. And so these are hard sermons to have, but they're ones that I know that I need. And I'm sure that you need as well. Because we love our stuff. And we love to find ways to stiff arm our Savior out of fear that He might ask for our stuff. How do we practically do this? It's simple. We pray scary prayers. We ask Jesus to teach us to love what He loves and hate what He hates. We ask Him to teach us to break our hearts for what breaks His And then we ask Him to show us the people, the places, the ministries, both near and far, that He is calling us to bless with the riches and resources that we have been blessed with. That's how we functionally do this. That's how we practically do this. And if we are not doing this, then chances are that there's there's something in our lives that we hold on to that we're not willing to let go. I hate every single time. My wife would give away everything that we have. This is one area that she just, oh, we have money? Great, we can give to this ministry and that one. She is on every non-for-profit mailing list that exists. I open my mailbox. If I miss a day, it's just like, give to this. Now, my natural reaction to that is, oh, great, I needed to start the wood-burning stove. I'll just take some of these and put them right in there. You don't even have to open them. That's not her heart. She wants to pray through them and ask God, God, is this something that you want me to give to? Is this something that you want me to give to? And out of the 150000 that she gets in a week, she might bring to me on occasion the one or the two that God's really pricking her heart and says, hey, will you pray about this? Pray if God wants us to give, and if so, what amount? That, to me, as soon as she does that, as soon as she shows up with a piece of mail, you want to know what, what your director's heart... Into? Right away, I go, oh, gosh, she's got mail in her hand. That doesn't look like a personal letter. <laughs> that looks like something that was mass sent to a lot of people asking for something that I don't want to give. 
What does that reveal? I'm not saying we give to every cause out there, but if I'm not even willing to engage that process in prayer and say my wife, who I know, love, and trust, feels something in her heart that God is calling her to do, if I'm not even willing to, what does that say about what's going on in here? I know I'm hot trash, but like that? Ugh. And if we hear a message like this, if I hear a message like this and are left with more yeah buts, then okay. Fair. We're called to be a unique people, not copycats with a Christian twist. And so let's invite the one who we say is our Lord into the whole of what we have been given. And I get it. If you're here today and you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, I don't expect you to become one today because this is weird. Right? I mean, what a, what a Sunday to come to. Like, oh man, what? A hundred percent? Usually I just go in the ask for five or ten or just whatever we have. You like the come as you are sermon or whatever. Like, oh man, you're asking for a hundred. I, I get it. I'm not saying it's not radical. I'm not saying it's not radically different than the world around us. But isn't that the point? But what I can tell you who are here today, if you do not Jesus know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it has already been revealed to you in the pages of Scripture that if you are pursuing this life to be your everything, you are headed down a road that will lead to disaster. And you already know it. You already see it. Go ahead and turn on the news. The richest men in the world, what are they trying to do? They're trying to fly to the moon. Because there is nothing on this earth that is going to satisfy you. And you already know it. You already feel it. And you know what? Truthfully, I know it and I feel it when I'm trying to cling to the stuff of this life to satisfy me. It turns to ash. And you have been holding on to what feels like ash for far too long. Come to Jesus. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm not saying that there isn't going to be scary asks at time. But the blessing and the reward is something that's going to far outweigh anything that you're going to find in your 401k. It rhymed. That was awesome. Ah, Holy Spirit. Um... But seriously, come to him. Take him at his word. And he promises you something, not just in this life, because you'll actually be living for something. But he promises you a return on investment in the life to come when you stand before him and he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into my kingdom. Here are my rewards. Here are every riches possible in the heavenly places at your disposal. Not just for 40 years, 60 years, or the last dwindling five years where you get to enjoy what's in their tank, but for all of eternity with the one who made you. That's what awaits you. And so I invite you, maybe not to your best life now, but to a life that is better than anything that all of the riches in this world, apart from Jesus, could possibly give you. And so I ask the one who is here today, who has never called on the name of Jesus to save them from their sins. You are still dead in your sins and you have not bowed a knee to Jesus. You have not said, you can have all of me. Do it today. Make that investment today by confessing your sin to him and asking him to be the payment for your sin now and for all eternity. And for those of us who are here today and you say, yeah, Jesus is my Lord. I know that. 
He is my Savior. I know that. Then we have to continue to ask that question. But is He Lord of all? Or just Lord of some? Where am I holding back? Because if He sits on the throne of our heart and if we understand Him for who He is, who He has revealed Himself to be, then what can we possibly hold back? What do we have that has not been given? May we not treasure anything more than the far surpassing treasure of knowing Christ. Like the one who found the treasure in the field and sold everything he had to purchase that field. Like the merchant who sold everything he had to purchase the pearl of great price. May there be nothing in our lives that we wouldn't be willing to lay aside for the far surpassing treasure found in living for King Jesus and all that awaits for us in his coming kingdom. Let's pray. Jesus, these are hard words. And making you Lord is difficult because by nature we want to sit on the throne. We want to call the shots. We want to have control. And we certainly don't want anyone standing in the way of that or preaching something contrary to that. And yet that's exactly what your word calls us to, to lay down our lives. And to view what we have as a gift. And we know that you are the giver of that gift and that you are good. And so I pray that we would use every good gift that you have given to us as a means of advancing your great name and your eternal kingdom. Forgive me for the ways, God, that I hold back. And reveal to me, by the power of your Holy Spirit, the places and the spaces that you are calling me to make an eternal investment in. God, may I... May I not care more about being mortgage-free or leaving a financial legacy, but may I continue each and every day to lay my wallet before you, to lay my house, my car, my comforts, all that you have given me, may I lay it at your feet and be willing to use it as you see fit. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.